This is Science Friday. I'm Kathleen Davis. And I'm Maddie Safaya. We're sitting in this week for Ira Flato. Later in the hour, we'll dive into what's known and not known about long COVID. And we'll dig into the world of art crime and just how experts go about authenticating priceless antiquities. But first, even though some days may feel more chaotic than others, the rotation of the surface of planet Earth proceeds at a pretty constant rate, about one full rotation every 24 hours. But the rotational speed of the inner core is less stable, and it's been known to shift over time. Now, researchers are reporting in the journal Nature Geoscience that, according to seismic data, the Earth's inner core may have recently paused its rotation and could even go on to reverse direction relative to the rest of the planet. Joining me to talk about that weirdness and other stories from the week in science is Tim Revel, deputy U.S. editor at New Scientist, based in New York City. Tim, welcome back to Science Friday. Hello. Thanks for having me. All right. So... What appears to be going on with this spinning core story? Yeah, this is really fascinating. So researchers have managed to use earthquake data, effectively similar earthquakes that have passed through the Earth over the last 60 or 70 years, to work out what's happening in Earth's inner core, which is the hard, solid iron inner core. There's then a liquid outer core around that, and then there's the mantle. And what's changed is before around 2009, if you'd been standing on the mantle and you'd been able to look down into the inner core, it would have looked like it was slowly spinning forwards because it was spinning slightly faster than the mantle. But what's changed now is it's slowed down. And effectively, if you look down at it, it would seem like it was stationary because it's moving at about the same speed as the mantle. So a a significant change. I've seen some stories that say it has stopped, others that say that it has just slowed down. I mean, what is right? Yeah, so it's stopped relative to the mantle. So it's still spinning around. And there is some room for error here, but it's effectively at a point where it's moving at about the same speed as the mantle. And what's particularly interesting about this new study is that it seems to suggest that there's a continual oscillation where it ends up spinning a bit faster than the mantle and a bit slower than the mantle with a period where it's uh, around the same speed in between. And that cycle appears to be about 70 years. um, And that's continually happening. I mean, this whole thing seems very uh, bizarre, but are there any real implications of this change? Yes, most of it really is this is just more understanding of the center of our planet, which we know very little about. It's so hard to study the innards of our planet because it's mostly rock between where we're standing and the inside. One thing it, it might tell us about a little bit more is that the planet's overall rotation does fluctuate a little bit from day to day, meaning the actual length of a day, how long it takes to do a full spin, varies a very small amount. And it seems that this relationship between the mantle and the inner core, where they're sort of tugging on each other and causing this oscillation, may play some role in that. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's move on to our next story, which has to do with language. And the idea here is that Humans and wild apes may actually share some common elements of language. Can you tell me a little bit about this? Yeah, this is a really wonderful story. It's really looking at the origins of language. And the obvious way to start this is to try and look at our closest animal cousins, the other great apes. In this study from researchers at St. Andrews University in Scotland, they showed people videos of chimpanzees and bonobos performing basic signs to communicate And then they gave the humans four multiple choice options to try and guess what the communication was, what the basic signs mean. 
And about five and a half thousand people took this test. Um, and you can still do that online if you wish. And the average score was just over 50%, which is double what you'd expect from chance alone, as there were four options. So it seems we do have some understanding of the same basic signs that chimps and bonobos use. Okay, so when we're talking about signs, what kinds of things are they signaling? Is it just like, give me the banana? Or what what are they talking about? (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, some of them are that simple. I mean... it's best to see them, but perhaps I could describe one to you now and you, yeah, can, please. you can guess whether you uh, can work it out. So imagine I'm a chimp. So what would you think if I uh, held out my arm and scratched it while sort of looking in your direction? Um, I would assume that you're itchy and maybe you need someone to give you a little itch. Yeah, exactly. So the, the option there would have been groom me, which is unusual for a human to do. But it is in primates, this sort of social bonding via grooming is really important. What about if uh, you were eating and I put my hand over your mouth? Um, the eating throws me off because I would think if you had normally put your hand over my mouth, it would be stop talking or stop making noise. <laughs> but I guess I'll go with that. I'll, I'll go with that. Yeah. So the, in this one, the, the correct answer is let me have some of your food, which obviously mm. would also be like, you know, completely social faux pas if I attempted that in a restaurant. But it's a sort of basic form of communication, these gestures. And the team know from previous research that chimpanzees and bonobos, about 90% of these basic signs overlap between the two species. And so it's thought that the fact that we can also understand them to a degree means that probably our last common ancestor used a similar set of basic sign language. And perhaps that's how human language evolved in the first place. That's really fascinating. And I hope that you're not putting your hand over uh, people's mouths in restaurants, Tim. Uh Um, Okay, so your next story is also on the wildlife beat. Uh, And we're going to go to Alaska and talk about some wolves uh, who actually found a new diet. Yeah, this, this is really interesting. This is wolves on Pleasant Island in Alaska have made sea otters their main food source. And this is after they basically ate all the deer on the island. And this is the first known case of sea otters becoming the primary food source for a land predator. And that's a very unusual situation because sea otters spend nearly all of their time in the ocean. So it's, it's pretty strange. So how did these researchers even figure out what these wolves are eating? Yeah, so the the wolves haven't actually been on the island very long. They were first spotted in about 2013, and it's thought that a pair swam over from the mainland. And so a team has been monitoring them since about 2015. A couple of years later, there were then 13 wolves, up from the two that were initially spotted, and about 93% of the deer had been wiped out. So they were real easy prey for these wolves on this small island. And so the new analysis, they've looked at wolf feces, And it suggests that sea otters make up about 50% of the diet of the wolf pack. They now eat almost no deer because there's no deer left. And the rest is based around fish and other sea creatures. So you mentioned that the otters are usually in the sea, which makes sense. Um, And I would imagine that the wolves are mostly on land. So how exactly does a wolf catch an otter? Yeah, this is one of the really interesting parts that this research team have spotted the wolves trying to flank the sea otters to stop them getting back into the sea. And I think a wolf doesn't stand a lot of chance to catch a sea otter when it's in the sea. Uh, Sea otters are very agile in the ocean, but much less so on land where wolves are really dominant. And so they have worked out and they understand that as soon as it's in the sea, they've lost their opportunity. But if they can, as a team, keep it on land, 
then that's where they're on home territory. That's really fascinating stuff. So our next story, we're going to go back in time a little bit to an analysis of an Egyptian mummy. Yeah. So this mummy was in the Egyptian Museum in Cairo, Egypt, and it's been in their basement there since about 1916. But it's originally from 300 BC. And a team has now digitally unwrapped it, which means rather than actually taking it apart, and it's very fragile, so that could risk damaging the mummy, they used hundreds of high-resolution X-ray images to work out what was inside. Turns out the mummy was a teenage boy who was between about 14 and 15 when he died, and he was buried with dozens of interesting amulets. Wow. This mummy also had a second heart. Is that right? Yeah. So um, amongst these amulets, one of them was like a a 30 centimeter golden scarab beetle, which was placed inside his chest cavity, symbolizing a heart. And it had um, inscriptions on the back of it, including from the Egyptian Book of the Dead, which contains magic spells to help guide you through the afterlife. He also had a, a golden tongue inside his mouth and an amulet in the shape of uh, fingers next to his left thigh and other amulets made from gold, stones and brightly coloured ceramics, all of which were meant to serve the purpose to help him on the arduous and difficult journey to the afterlife. So how would having all these extra body parts potentially help an Egyptian boy on his way to the afterlife? Each of them serve different purposes. So for the second heart, because his own heart is still in the chest cavity, most of the other organs are removed, but the heart is still there. It's thought that the particular role that played was that it was helped keep his heart silent on the day of judgment, which would help him pass that test. The tongue should help him speak on the journey. So each one played a, a slightly different role according to the Egyptian beliefs at the time, but they were all to help him what was a very difficult journey, hopefully just to give you the edge to, to make it through. Mm-hmm. We have one more story that I want to get to, and these videos came out this week that were pretty amazing, and they looked a little bit uh, inspired by Hollywood. A robot that can shift into liquid metal. What the heck is going on here? Yeah, the videos are amazing. You've got to try and see them. It's a tiny metal robot, and robot in quite a loose sense, that can liquefy itself and reform. So in one example, the team could make the robot liquefy, drag a little light bulb on a circuit board into position, and then solidify to solder it in place, and then the light bulb lights up. Um, (laughs) In another one, the researchers put it into a fake human stomach, where it melted onto a foreign object and then drags this this uh uh object out it's really gross um (laughs) and then perhaps my favorite one which i think is the video that's been spreading around a lot is where it's the robot is shaped into like a sort of lego man shape and then it's put behind some fake jail bars and then to get out to escape the robot then melts and slides through the gaps sort of terminator 2 style that is uh absolutely fascinating and it sounds a little bit troubling but i mean i guess there's a purpose here Yeah, there's a purpose here. And it it should also be said that this robot is not very clever at all. It's really Mm -hmm. just a blob of metal and magnetic components. So the researchers have to drag it around with very precise magnets. So this robot has got no autonomy in any meaningful sense at all. But it could still be useful. So, for example, one use case they see could be that if you're on a, a spaceship and perhaps a screw gets lost, perhaps you could drag this robot into position. It slides into where the screw was, forms into a screw shape and then solidifies 
So you don't need to use any additional screwdrivers or anything like that. The robot could just do everything you need. All right. I guess we'll have to keep an eye on this and see how it develops. Thank you so much, Tim, for bringing us these stories. No problem. Thanks for having me. Tim Revel, Deputy U.S. Editor at New Scientist, based in New York City.